You're listening to the Jesus for Everyone podcast. To support this podcast, go to RenewedHeartMinistries.com and click donate. And again, my purpose in sharing their work with you is so that each of us can do our own homework. Uh, we can we can ourselves, we can put in the energy to read and to study and to grapple with all of this, this before, before we ask someone in the Christian LGBTQ community to answer questions that they have already answered multiple times and in multiple ways. This is Herb Montgomery with Renewed Heart Ministries, and I want to welcome you to episode 278 of the Jesus for Everyone podcast. It's a podcast where we talk about the intersection of faith and social justice and what a first century Jewish prophet of the poor from Galilee might have to offer us today in our work of love, compassion, action, and justice. Our title this week is Calling Good Evil Part 2, and our feature text is Matthew 7, 16 through 20. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. And as I shared in our our last episode, I've refrained from debating the passages that we'll be considering this week. I've also, I've not wanted to, to, to just be another straight cisgender male getting airtime to speak on passages that LGBTQ people have been speaking and, and writing on uh, for decades now. I didn't want to take up space when, when I believe that others' voices uh, need to be heard right now. And yet, as I, again, as I said in the last podcast, I'm torn when I watch the toil that it takes on my LGBTQ friends to repeatedly explain these passages. Speaking about this, it doesn't have the same emotional cost for me as it does for them. And perhaps I've been a little too silent. That's what I'm wrestling with here. I've not been silent at all in my affirmation, but I've been silent on some of the ways that I arrive at that affirmation. So uh, I've promised to amplify two voices on on this topic, Uh, the excellent work of Matthew Vines, who is a writer and a speaker in the LGBTQ community uh, that that Jesus followers, I believe, should be listening to, and James uh, Brownson. He he is a biblical scholar, and he's a parent of a child in the LGBTQ community. And, And again, my purpose in sharing their work with you is so that each of us can do our own homework. Uh, we can we can ourselves. We can put in the energy to read, uh, to study, and to grapple with all of this. This before before we ask someone in the Christian LGBTQ community to answer questions that they have already answered multiple times and in multiple ways. These discussions they aren't academic for them. Uh, they are personally invested in in in, uh, 
in this topic, and many are tired of, of continually arguing about their existence. The reality is they already exist, and they have callings to pursue, and they're pursuing them. And it's it's up to you how you respond to that. So with that said, I want to offer some help to those who are sincerely searching and doing their homework and, and wanting direction. Matthew Vines' book, God and the Gay Christian, it's very readable. It's not written for scholars. It's written for just the average person. And Brownson's book, The Bible, Gender, and Sexuality, is a definitive work on, on affirming Christian theology. And it's the book that played a significant role in my own journey of, of learning about uh, affirming theology. So, so what follows this week and, and possibly next is a brief explanation of how I interpret uh, each passage that's typically used to address LGBTQ people. And these are not going to be exhaustive defenses of each passage or each interpretation of each passage. It's just brief summaries. And it's an introduction, if you look at it that way, uh, just to get you started. And, and again, for a more detailed discussion of each of these uh, passages, I, I highly recommend uh, the two resources that I've, that I've already mentioned. So, so let's jump right into it. Let's begin in Genesis 19. And this passage is an ancient story of a, a city's xenophobic refusal to show hospitality to strangers. And, and this refusal, it came out of the town people's desire to protect their affluence from the threat of, of having to share with others. The city, Sodom, it was located in a coveted and agriculturally fertile region. It's, it was much like the U.S., uh, which has, has uh, uh, recently separated migrant children from their parents on its southwest borders. Sodom developed an effective strategy of terrorizing potential migrants to keep foreigners uh, away. And in the story, Lot was different. He, he saw two foreigners in his town, and he invited them to his home for the evening to keep them safe, hoping to, to send them uh, secretly on their way at the first light of dawn. And, and what happened that night? It was terrifying, and it was intended, it was, the, it was an intentional message to, to all foreigners to stay away. This is Genesis 19, 1 through 5. Two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet, spend the night, and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we'll spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did not go with him, that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who have come to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Now that's a very tame interpretation. Typically, or uh, yeah, not interpretation, sorry, a very tame translation of this passage. And, and, and again, typically Christians use this story 
to marginalize those with same-sex attraction or same-sex orientation or, or, or in same-sex loving relationships. And I believe um, these interpretations, they miss the mark in a most destructive way for those who identify as LGBTQ. Uh, in this story and in this culture, rape was a way to inflict the worst possible humiliation on another. And it was rooted in ingrained patriarchal gender roles. I'll give you a link to gender and law in the Hebrew Bible in the ancient Near East in this week's Esight. But but the laser beam of convicting truth in, in these ancient tales, especially this one, it shouldn't be focused on members of the LGBTQ community, but rather it should be people. It should be on people who use sexual violence or really any form of terror against others uh, on the kinds of uh, uh, xenophobic basis. Um, more like the actions that the United States is is committing at its borders against immigrants across the country. Hospitality towards strangers. It, it was and it still is a deeply held Jewish value. You can see in Deuteronomy twenty six twelve, Deuteronomy. 24, 19 through 21, Deuteronomy 14, 28 through 29, Deuteronomy 10, 19. Uh, the Jewish followers of Jesus, they even carried on their tradition of hospitality towards strangers. In the New Testament scriptures as well, you find this passage from the book of Hebrews. It, it almost echoes the story of Sodom. This is Hebrews 13, 2. Do not do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. The story of Sodom, it's not about the LGBTQ community or LGBTQ communities or people's loving relationships. Instead, it has everything to do with people who were extravagantly affluent and they didn't wish to share. They devised ways to terrorize anyone who came around so the message would spread, stay away. This is Ezekiel 16, 49 through 50. Now, this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them, as you have seen. The story of Sodom, it has nothing to do with sexual orientation or loving same sex relationships. It's rather about the evil of responding to strangers with, or even migrants, with violence. And in this case, sexual violence, especially when their lives, the lives of these strangers depend on your welcome and on your hospitality. It was a warning. This story was a warning against xenophobia and the terror tactics that xenophobes employ to, to, to make people afraid of, of coming to a region for, for help. And for additional background on, on this, you can read Judges 19, 11 through 30, where this tactic was used again. And you can also, uh, I'll give you some links to, to more current articles. You can read Rape. I'll give you a link to these. Rape as a Weapon of War Against Men. Male Rape Survivors Fight Stigma in Uganda. And Male Rape and Human Rights. Um, um, the way this was used was, was to terrorize uh, migrants or foreigners or strangers. Let's, let's talk about Leviticus 18. 
this week too. Leviticus 18:22 reads, "Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable." The Christian affirming theologies, they interpret this passage in many different ways. You'll find many different interpretations of this passage. But the way that speaks most deeply to me and my sense of justice is it's related to our previous story in Sodom, which which again does not address same sex between uh, uh, women, uh, but only what men do to other men. And that's significant. Here in Leviticus, it's only what men do to uh, men that's even addressed. Again, this passage is not informed by, by what we understand today as sexual orientation. It's informed by the sexual violence that men inflict on other men uh, to diminish them. And again, you can find it in, in, in Judges 19, 11 through 30, and the story we just looked at in Genesis 19, 1 through 5, and, and the above resources that I've, I, I've just referenced. But, but as I explained, a man raping another man, it was intended to inflict the worst possible humiliation on him. And in that culture, uh, women were, were wrongly considered to be less than men. And so one way to dehumanize a man was to lower him, in their culture, was to lower him to the same status as a woman. So in this culture, uh, the law is prohibiting diminishing men by treating them as if they were women. Both men and women were raped in times of war and conquest, and they still are today. But, but it, it's shocking to me to see how lightly many portions of our sacred text, many portions of the Bible considered, how lightly it considered the rape of women. We seem to see much more concern with protecting men from being raped by other men than with protecting women from, from rape or, or raping uh, women being detestable. That is never, uh, uh, that's, a, that's, that's language that's not used in the text. But again, this was an androcentric culture deeply rooted in patriarchy. And today, we still see misogyny and toxic masculinity at the heart of, of many men's reaction to same-sex relationships between men. Many men today, they seem to, me, to more easily tolerate same-sex relationships between women uh, than, than, than they do uh, same-sex relationships between men. Uh, some even treat same-sex relationships between women as a, a sexual fetish. But I I remember sitting in a restaurant speaking with a friend of mine whose son had just come out to him as gay, and my friend was beside himself. He, he stated how deeply repulsed he was by same-sex intimacy between men, and he said he didn't even want to be in the same room with them, and, and now his own son was one of them too, he said. And I looked at him, and I took a risk here. I risked an accusation. I was banking on uh, the relationship that we had uh, allowing me to get away with this. But I looked at him in the eye and I said, you just don't like the idea of men looking at you the way that you typically look at women. And you could see the light come on in his eyes. The coin dropped in the slot and, and his misogyny, his objectification of women 
it was deeply tied to his inability to accept same-sex relationships among men, including his own sons. So I'm happy to say that 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 conversation was a turning point for my friend. Today, he fully embraces and celebrates his son, and, and his relationships with women have become a million times more healthy, and he's an outspoken ally of LGBTQ folks, and he's come a long way. What a contemporary reading of Leviticus should warn men about today today is the intrinsic harm of first believing that women are somehow less than men. I'm convinced that if someone truly believed that women were equal with men, then seeing men who don't align with our culture's toxic definitions of what it means to be a man, that wouldn't threaten those of us who identify as male. And yet even in saying all of this, it says a lot when masculinity is still defined as as not femininity. Uh, that, that's, when that's the case, the rape of men, like in the text, is a problem because it treats men like women. But, but the deeper violation is that sexual violence is a problem on its own terms. And it's one that harms people of, of all genders. And to fail to see this is still an, an androcentric uh, interpretation, as androcentric as the culture out of which uh, Leviticus was written. Uh, the, the, for the sake of time, next week, we're going to look at uh, four, the four New Testament passages that are typically discussed uh, in this context. And, and then we're going to take a close, uh, we'll close with a closer look at uh, Genesis 1. But for now, Leviticus and Genesis both, um, they're dealing with, with sexual violence, uh, uh, in in uh, 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 in Leviticus, it's a deeply patriarchal uh, uh, prohibition against uh, treating men uh, like a woman, uh, because in that culture they believe that would devalue them. Um, but it's uh, it's also uh, in Genesis, it's 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 a warning against what happens when we use terror. <laughs> To to instead of hospitality, uh, we choose terror as as the response to strangers and foreigners who come to us uh, needing uh, help. So for now, uh, it's enough to remember: by their fruit, you'll recognize them. Do people uh, pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A tree, a good tree, cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear fruit, uh, good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus by their fruit, you will recognize them. Matthew 7, 16 through 20. Heart group application this week. I grew up in a faith tradition that looked at the Bible as having only one right interpretation and many wrong interpretations. And I was, I believe, wrongly taught that, that one could objectively find this one right interpretation if one practiced just proper hermeneutics. But I no longer subscribe to that way of of looking at sacred text. Our biases are, are inescapable when we all have blind spots. And even in our attempts to be objective, we rarely recognize even our own biases or our own blind spots. Uh, fish don't know they're wet. And, and so when we look at the text as having only one right interpretation, the result is that we, we, we tend to, to, to seek finding uh, that one right interpretation regardless of whether the fruit of that interpretation is harmful or, or, or life-giving. Uh, we want to be 
right, so to speak, rather than being righteous. The, the, the goal, I believe, should, should rather be to allow the text to speak to us in our context today with the most life-giving, life-affirming, life-celebrating interpretations that our, our present level of knowledge will enable. So sacred texts of all religions, including the Bible, they can have a myriad of interpretations and, and applications. That's, that's, that was the, the root uh, uh, of Jewish midrash even. But the, the goal is to embrace life-giving interpretations that move away from interpretations that do harm to oneself or to others. And asking whether an interpretation is right or not, I think that's the wrong question. We have to ask if our interpretations are righteous. Uh, what, what fruit do they produce? Is the fruit harmful or is it life-embracing? Is it life-giving? Uh, does our interpretation liberate or does it oppress? Uh, do our interpretations, do they fuel injustice or do they empower us to, to move away from injustice and to engage the work of, of shaping a just and compassionate and safe society for everyone. The choice, including our interpretations, is this choice is an ancient one. It's, it's found in Deuteronomy 30, 15, uh, where, again, the, the, the choice is placed before us uh, to, of life or, or death. And how can you know if in your interpretive lenses, if you're on the right track? Well, consider your interpretations. Are they, are they bringing life or are they doing harm? Remember Matthew 7, 16, by their fruit, you'll recognize them. A good tree can't produce bad fruit and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. By your fruit, you're, by the fruit of that interpretation, you're going to know whether it's an acceptable interpretation of that passage or not. And if you're if your interpretation of a passage is doing harm, don't hold on to it out of a prioritized value of, of being right or because it's, a, uh, it's an, an interpretation that, that most resonates with your own biases. Uh, whether you perceive that bias or, or, or otherwise, prioritize people's well-being first. People matter. So loosen your grip on harmful interpretations, uh, no longer how long you've held on to those interpretations interpretations and be open to embracing other interpretations that are righteous that prioritize people's well-being that that are just and and that give life so this week number 1 Come up with a list of, of three, if you can, three interpretations of Bible passages that you believe are harmful, that you believe this is what the Bible teaches, but that teaching produces harm. Um, realize it may be your interpretation of the passage, not the passage itself. And then number two, discuss with your heart group uh, the harm that you've witnessed from those interpretations. And then number three, discuss with your group alternative alternative interpretations, or begin seeking out new interpretations with the goal of interpreting your sacred text in a more life-giving or in life-giving ways. Uh, thanks for, for journeying us with, uh, with us so far. Um, again, we've only looked at two of our passages. We're going to look at four more, and then we're going to go back to Genesis 1 and end there. But I'm deeply grateful that you're here, that you're tracking with us. Uh, again, we'll keep exploring next week. This week, wherever you are, keep living in love compassion, action, and justice. Remember, another world is possible. I love each one of you dearly. I'll see you next week.